Welcome to Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show. I'm Ted Bonnet. I'm Phil Proctor, and we just listened to the late Peter Bergman and the still alive and kicking David Osman. Dave's going to be coming down here, and I think we'll get him on one of the shows. He lives up on Whidbey Island, but we're doing a, a project. Uh, I guess, it, is it secret? Yes, it's for the... It's, and it sounds very exciting, but we will be working together at that. He's playing the part of the... And I'm doing the... And as well. So... I certainly hope they have a budget for the... Well, <laughs> you know, because otherwise it'll be... He'll be down here for no reason at all, you know. Hey, we didn't sell these during the pledge. Yeah. Well, the pledge is over. Yeah. No yeah, pledging. I mean, no, no pledging. No pledging. And, 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 although I pledge we're going to have a great show yeah, because we, yeah. my dear friend Lawrence Kubik is here today who really represents, like, to me, uh, Hollywood history. Yes. You, Lawrence, you are Hollywood history. You were... You, Starting as an actor and then going becoming a ma- an agent and a manager over a great long and period producer. of time. And, and a producer. And a producer. And we have, I just want to talk a little bit about our personal relationship. First of all, uh, Larry, Lawrence now lives across the street pretty much from, from where I live. Cheap town. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and he owned, you own what, three houses on that street? Yeah. Yep. And, and I think I visited all of them uh, when I was, when I was uh, growing up. Uh, I, I've been on that street for, this is a street in Benedict Canyon. I've been there for 50 years really now. And um, I remember I met uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger in your swimming pool, right? And, well, anyway, we'll get, we'll get into those you stories. You met Arnold Schwarzenegger in his swimming pool? Yes. He lifted my then-wife, Barbaro, uh, right out of the water. I have a picture of it somewhere. Before he was the governor. It was before, yeah, before, before he was, he was the governor. governor. That's before right. You, as, a, as a talent uh, manager and agent, you you worked with some really interesting people in the early days of their career. Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, Sylvester Stallone. Firesign Theater. You cut the Rocky deal. We're going to talk about that because that's, right, that's, a, that's a hell of but a story. But that's how we met. We met on, on the Firesign Theater when the Firesign Theater was hired to reimagine a script called Zachariah. So, yeah, you, we want to talk about... This era of Hollywood that you were immersed in, which is just fascinating, uh, and the people you worked with, including Peter Fonda, Jane, John Voight. Uh, yeah, but originally uh, you you were a uh, Bronx boy. Yeah, that's true. And w- your born folks, in the Bronx, born in the Bronx, and your folks were in vaudeville, which I really didn't know about you. Well, vaudeville so, in in uh, my father was in, in vaudeville in in England in London. Oh, and. Uh, he started when he was a kid, you know, dancing on street corners for tuppence, as he used to say. Right. Wow. But he uh, he had worked with uh, Archibald. Who well, changed his name? He Archie. changed his name to Cary Grant. He was known better, <laughs> right. by, oh, better oh, by that name. Archie Leach, Archie Leach Archie was his Leach. name. Archie Leach. Right. Yeah. And, and that was a good call to change the name from Leach. Well, I don't think there was a lot of work for Archie because he used to dance on stilts. That was his act. His act. That was his Harry act. Grant started on stilts. Dancing Holy on stilts. Holy Moses. Yeah. Wow. I, I just saw like his second movie last night with Mae West. She done him wrong. That's right. Yeah. Okay. And a, a fresh-faced young character actor. But yeah, athletic. He was an athlete. Amazing athlete. Like, yeah. like uh, as we said earlier, um, Catherine Hepburn. They started, in, my dad started in vaudeville. Yeah. And my mother was on Broadway when she was 15. Wow. You know, she was in a uh, a company called the Gus Edwards 
show, yeah. which was like uh, Ziegfeld. Mm. And uh, she was only like five foot uh, two, maybe. Huh. You know, but she was so small, they would put her at the end of the line. So you know how those shows like the Ziegfeld right. and the Rockets, <laughs> yep. all those lines turn? Yes. Yep. Well, she was at the end because she was the shortest. She, she had to run she like She had heck. to run <laughs> to catch up. <laughs> By the time they made the turn, so she'd be there at her spot. So you were born into show business. I I was definitely born into show business, but my my mother used to say I had two left feet, so I was not a dancer. Uh, (laughs) And then, and then you, uh, they all moved. You moved out here, and you went to Fairfax High. That's right. I went to Fairfax High. And then, uh, after a stint in the Marines and the Navy. That's right. Uh, Yeah, I went to Fairfax High before this. The Marines and the Navy. Did you volunteer, or were you a draft? No, in those days you had to. uh, There was a draft service, so I was in the uh, Naval Reserve. But yeah. you, your your fame was as a basketball player. I did play some basketball. Yeah, no, yeah. some yeah. basketball. Yeah, you, you you told me a story when we were watching the Super Bowl the other day that you you know were offered kind of a career. Not really. No? I wasn't that. I wasn't that good. That, I wish huh? I was, but no, I I actually. Uh, I, they I, just I, liked uh, you on the team. Well, and I was to actually in the Navy. I was recruited to play football. Oh, which was really kind of a funny story because. Uh, when I was recruited to play football in, in school, in high school, I had grown from like five foot six in my sophomore year. Yeah. By the time I was a senior, I was five eight or something like that. And then I grew three more inches, and then I was five eleven. Well, I, I thought I'd play football, but the coaches said, "Well, you didn't play as a junior. It's not fair to the other kids, so mm-hmm. you can't play football." So I kept growing. You know, and then one day this I'll Navy, show you. this Navy chief came by and said, "You report to football practice." So I said, "I don't play football." He says, "You do now." So I went out for the football team, and I actually really enjoyed it. It was a lot ah. of fun. In fact, I, I came pretty good at football, but uh, we played. You know, the admirals were really gung ho and very competitive with each other. Yes. So we had to play the Marine Corps in a uh, contest. You know, to, for the championship of the 11th Naval District. And uh, the Marines would say, uh, when they were coming out to play us, they would say, at, at uh, quarterback from the University of Notre Dame, and oh. they'd introduce this kid. It'd be huge. Yeah. And they'd say, uh, at linebacker from Ohio State. Holy It'd be macro. so-and-so. And then from uh, USC, the tight end is, uh, and our coach would look at us and say, didn't any of you dummies go to school anywhere? <laughs> <laughs> well, this must have been a, a you know, a, a, a combat sport like that must have really helped prepare you for the for show business. For the, brutality, <laughs> the brutality <laughs> of Hollywood. I'll, I'll tell you what did prepare me for it. I was a neuropsychiatric technician in the Navy. So you had to go to a neuropsychiatric school mm-hmm. and work with Ooh. psychiatrists. Man, man, man. And when they started with group therapy, which is we were... At the, they were, I think, the Navy we may have been the first people to start with, with group therapy. But yeah. you, you started yeah. as an actor out here? Yeah, I started as an actor. Yeah. With, uh, with an infamous, famous, rather, actor coach named Jeff Corey. Oh, very who, well. Who yeah, very a, well known. A well-known character actor, great actor. Yeah. And Leonard Nimoy was also one of my oh, uh, coaches. Really? <laughs> yeah, they were great. But eventually, you would wanted more job security. Is that what? Uh, yeah, there's no job security in acting. You know, yeah, if, if yeah. you can, uh, that's why a lot of wealthy people 
I don't know about Phil, yeah. but a lot of wealthy <laughs> people good into the acting profession. They're supported by their families, as you, mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. and it happens that way oh, oftentimes. And I say hooray for them. I mean, it's, it's about stick to itiveness and, and I think Jack Lemon had the best line of, of all. He yeah. said, if they'd have told me my chances of becoming successful were a million to one, it wouldn't have changed anything for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you don't have that kind of passion, yes, that's then right. don't do it. You know? you know, I was lucky because both your parents were in the business. My parents wanted to be in the business. Right. But your folks, did they try to ma- ma- manage you or handle you at all at that no, time? No, no, no. I mean, I... I mean, when I told uh, my parents that I was, you know, I wanted to be an actor, yeah. you know, uh, you know, they shook it off. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But, uh, you know, I mean, my, my father had it in his blood. My father mm-hmm. was a phenomenal dancer. He was mm. on MGM, brought him out to California. And he, he, I think his first movie was uh, Chocolate Soldier with Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald. Oh, my goodness. You know? So, I mean, uh, he had a real passion for yeah. it. He loved it. And uh, I loved watching him, and uh, he was phenomenal at it. And you, you know? and, but then you came up during a sea change in Hollywood when the pictures, the, 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 the motion picture business was waning, and the television industry was dominating. You were well, in the middle of this. I think I started agenting in '63, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I think at the time, I mean, it was kind of like towards the end of the golden era of Hollywood. Yeah. Because yeah. a lot of the people that I worked with or came across, you know, were there in the 30s and 40s. There were a lot of actors, you know. I mean, I remember wow. uh, Henry Wilcoxon was an old character actor who was very good friends with Cecil B. DeMille. You know, and that was the old funny story about Cecil B. DeMille with multiple cameras on yes. Ben-Hur, which Henry Wilcoxon was one of the stars of. Oh, the, oh uh, my the, goodness. The first Ben-Hur. That, yeah. Or maybe it was... Yeah, it was like the early Ben Hur that Henry Wilcoxon was in, and he was a wonderful character actor—a granite jaw, yeah. big man, you know, great stature. And uh, he would tell me the stories about working with DeMille, and you know, and 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 stuff like that. And at that, at that point in time, you know, it was an era that, uh, you know, the st- stars wouldn't do television. I right, mean, they just wouldn't. They do wouldn't it. do commercials, and they wouldn't and do television. They, and they wouldn't do talk shows. And they wouldn't do talk no. shows. Case really. in point. They, I mean, Robert Mitchum used to tell me, I don't do talk shows. And I would say, well, Bob, aren't you going to be, uh, don't you think that uh, it would help promote? Your, I don't want to hear that nonsense. I'm not doing television. You know, and, <laughs> and I think toward the end of his career, probably he might have changed his, yeah. his point about that. When he saw it. But uh, he it, it was, but he was a guy that actually believed that, uh, he told me he used to do three movies a week. You know, he'd be over on the RKO lot, and he'd work. He'd be a bad guy. Then he'd go over to uh, to Fox and do a wow. couple of lines, and you know, as on another movie. Sometimes he'd be, he was able to do like the same day. He'd go from one wow. studio to the oh, other. So if you see what these fun. early pictures of the late '30s, early '40s, he's you'll all, see he's him in it. some of these movies where he's billed second to last on the screen. <laughs> you know? And you go, wow. I mean, he really came through within the Now, did you just know him or did you? Yeah, I knew him very well because his son was a client of mine, James. Oh, I see. Okay. And uh, I I knew them very well. And uh, he was great. You know, he had had an amazing uh, memory. I mean, he could pick up a script and and learn half the script by lunchtime. You have to give it to him. Oh, boy. What a gift that is. He had a, a, a tremendous gift. 
where were you happiest? Were you were you happy as an agent? Did you find more comfort there? Well, I told <laughs> Phil earlier. Yeah. You know, I've I've been an agent. I've been a manager. I've been a producer. And, you know, and sometimes you go backwards. Sometimes you've been, you've been a manager, an agent, and a producer again, and a producer, and then a manager. I mean, you know, it, it really kind of got to be a joke in the last couple of decades because now they have 14 people uh, are that producers. are credited as producers. Right, right. You know, and if you run into some of these characters, you know, you say, what did you have to do with the movie? Well, it's my movie. Well, how is it your movie? Well, I'm a, a producer. I said, perhaps there's a reason they only allow three people on stage during Oscar time that have producer credits, and everybody else is sitting in the back or home watching it on television. You produced uh, a couple of films, Death Before Dishonor, Merchants of War, and you did the TV, You produced the TV series Hunter. Correct. So when was Hunter on? I think the end of the 80s. End of the to, 80s. To, to like 91 maybe, something like that. Oh, okay. That. It, was, it had a run for about six seasons. We didn't do it for the six seasons. We did it for the last uh, couple of seasons. I see. You know. And how did you see the TV business evolve? I mean, it's completely different now, of course. Well, there's one thing about the TV business that you have to understand. That the executive producer is usually the showrunner. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. the guy that creates it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's interesting that if you come out of film, you'll find the process is different in movies by far mm-hmm. because directors don't edit television. Mm-hmm. The executive producers usually are the ones that do the editing. Post, yeah, post-production. They oversee the post and they mm-hmm. have the final cut. Yes. You know, uh, the director, if, if he's doing an hour show, or I don't even know in this day and age if, they, if you do a half hour that, that's yeah. uh, and they do it in front of an audience, Yes. you know, that uh, it goes to it's, – it's edited – you know, by the by, the producers, the right. executive producer has, has has a say about mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But the directors, when I was doing television, it was they they prep a week and they shoot a week, and that's mm-hmm. how it would be. But you got to remember, if you had a show at that time, they would order a season was twenty two episodes. That's right. Yeah. You know, so right. and this was a three network universe, so it was uh, by default mm-hmm. had huge audience numbers. So the scale of economics was just much bigger. Right? Well, you would negotiate what they call a license fee with the studio, which would be one of the networks, right. and they would give you you negotiate a number that you would make all all the episodes for, and you had to make that money last. And if you were going over or on a show, you couldn't go over on a show. If you took seven days to shoot an episode, you know, that was it. But if you went over, you were in trouble because you had to make it up on another show. So how by making it up, you would you end up on, be on the soundstage the whole time uh-huh. rather than going on outside locations because it costs more money to right. shoot outside than it does to shoot what on the stage. What would happen if it just, just was a, a mess and, and you ended up banking it? Your... Somebody else would have your job. pretty quick huh (laughs) the networks had all the power you know that way yes but uh uh you know it was it was a lot of fun but it was exhausting work Mm -hmm. because you're you're basically you're you're prepping a show you're shooting a show and you have a show in post now did you have writers or were you oh yeah you have a staff of writers Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh but ultimately did you make the creative decisions on on story and all that well what what they would do is they would come in and pitch us the show. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when you have a staff, in our case, we had like four writers that were on the staff. Mm-hmm. So sometimes if you they get behind, 
one writer would write the first act, one writer, or a different writer on the staff would write the second act. There'd be four writers writing on one episode. But that wasn't the ideal situation. Four yeah. writers in the sky. Yeah, ghost writers. Boom, 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 boom. <laughs> yeah, ghost writers. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is how it would typically go in a normal situation. But then you got involved in the talent end of the business. You had an agency called Fame. Well, yeah, I had an agency called Fame. But before we started Fame, which was Film Artist Management Enterprises. Mm-hmm. But we had uh, – I worked for other agencies. I worked for – some really, uh, couple of really, the first great agent I thought mm-hmm. that I worked for was a gentleman named uh, William Velasco. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was very smart. He, by 24, he was the first vice president at GAC, which was a major agency at the at time. 24. Yeah, wow. 20. He was, he was incredible. He was natally dressed always. And uh, I remember that I had already worked in a couple of small agencies that were absorbed by the agency that, that Billy had. And uh, I didn't re- thought I knew what I was doing, but I wasn't sure. And uh, I was kind of faking it a little bit. And uh, I got a call one day, and it was the head of talent at uh, Columbia Pictures. And he says to me, I want to make a deal with you for uh, Tab Hunter. I want him for this picture. And, I, and Billy had walked in from his office and I said, Billy Gordon wants to make a deal for Tab. He says, keep going. You do it. And he put his hand. So he starts negotiating with me, head of casting yeah. for Columbia. Now, by this time, I'm perspiring through my shirt. You know, <laughs> And he's telling me this, this, is this. And Billy is telling him, putting his hand over the phone. And he's telling me, no, yes, for this. Tell me you want that. I said, oh, yeah, you heard me. Go ahead. Do it that way. So I say, Cyrano de Bergerac. Yeah, I mean, so it was exactly right. <laughs> He's feeding me the lines. You know, and at the end of the day, I'm going, I, I, I'm not going to get all this. So all of a sudden, at the end of the conversation, about 15, 20 minutes later, he says to me, okay, we have a deal. We have a deal, right? And he smiles at me, the boss, and I said to him, yes, we have a deal. He says, okay. He says, I hang up the phone, and, and Mr. Belasco looks at me. He says, next time you'll do it yourself. And he walked out of the room, and that was... Wow. And I went, okay. I got it. Well, you know. Got it, coach. <laughs> what, the truisms uh, yeah. of Hollywood. Phil famously likes to say Hollywood's the only town where you get stabbed in the front. And when I first <laughs> moved here, I did a piece for NPR on the art of the Hollywood pitch. Yeah. And I spoke to... Uh, Carl Gottlieb and uh, David Sheffield and his yeah. partner, Barry Blaustein, who wrote all of Eddie Murphy's movies. Uh-huh. And they explained to me that, I said, how does it work? And they said, well, there's only a handful pe- of people in Hollywood that have the power to say yes. So everybody else's job is to create, to come up with creative ways to say no. And they said, here are the warning signs. If you, if you make a pitch and they go, that's great, that's fantastic, I'm going to have my lawyers contact you. He said, you're, you're dead. You're, you're screwed. You're dead in the water. Now, now these are people who have Made generated a billion dollars in box office. Yeah. So they've had these experiences. What was your experience? Well, as an agent, you're, you're pitching the stories to producers or directors. And then you, before you, the writer gets in the room. You know, yeah. or before you give them the script, you got to get them interested in it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I used to pitch them, and I tell them the whole thing, and I get all up, up in you know, how to do that. And, you know, you, you, it's going to be this, and it's going to be that. And then all of a sudden, uh, I sit over the script, and then I get a phone call, Cubic. <laughs> if 
the story you pitched me was in the movie, I'd have made that story. <laughs> but that's not in the, it's not in the script. You know, so I would go, you, yeah, he's right. You know, would, yeah, yeah well, it. all these script yeah. things. You, know, you, you have a connection with Sylvester Stallone. Yeah. Uh, evidently, Sylvester Stallone has been out there saying that he feels cheated and slighted about his Rocky franchise, particularly the first three films of Rocky, that he didn't own it. I think it was first three rounds. Actually. The first three rounds, yeah. Right. And uh, I saw that your former partner, who is now gone, but his son wrote to his father's defense saying, you know, that's not quite how it went no, down. Yeah, I know. It's and, and, yeah, and you know, it's just interesting because you made, you made the deal for the Correct. first Rocky movie. Yeah, you right. made this mythical experience happen that we've all heard that Sly Stallone was, you know, trying to make it. He was in a walk-up somewhere in Hell's Kitchen, New York, and he decided to sit down for a weekend and, and write Rocky, and he did it, and he, but he wouldn't sell it unless he could be star, and he did yeah. it, and it's a great Hollywood yeah, story. That's, that's what we've all been told. Okay. Now, you made the deal, so tell us. Is, <laughs> how true is that? Okay. Uh, the part that's true? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. This will only take a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, we. I first found him when I had seen uh, Lords of Flatbush. Right. And I walked into Columbia Pictures for a meeting at uh, Bob Ravelson's company. And he was, in the, he was in the lobby uh, waiting for a meeting, an audition for something. Mm-hmm. And I saw him there. We chatted. And uh, I gave him a card. And he called me that day. And he came over and we talked. And I said, oh, I like what I saw you in Wars of Flat Pleasure. I like the work you did. And um, I think maybe we could make something happen. I didn't want anything else. But, you know. So uh, he, we agreed. And I said, okay. I brought in a couple of the other agents that were working with us there. And... Uh, he said, let's give it a shot with this kid. So uh, he was called he, me he soon was thereafter. He was unsigned at the time? Uh, he had been with the Morris office, I Morris, think. Morris, uh, big agency. Uh, okay. From New York, when he was mm-hmm. in New York, uh-huh. I think. And uh, so uh, um, what had happened was uh, he told me he was a writer also. And I went, really? He says, yeah, can I bring you a couple of scripts? I said, sure, bring me a couple of scripts. So he brought me a couple of scripts. And... Uh, we also had a very serious literary business. My partner was ah. primarily ran the literary department because he only uh, he only represented writers and directors, mm-hmm. and I basically represented writers, directors, and, and the talent. And and is this Cra- Craig Rumor? This is Craig Rumor. Rumor. And Craig didn't really have all that much to do with, with actors, and I can't couldn't blame him for that. Huh. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know. So uh, uh, we we. Uh, read a couple of his scripts, and I thought one of them might be pretty good. Now, uh, I have a dear friend named Gene Kirkwood, who is, uh, who is a producer today, and uh, he had a deal with uh, Chartoff and Winkler, and they had a production deal with MGM and United Artists. And their deal was that uh, they were producing, uh, the first couple of pictures, I think, were Presley pictures, and they did mm. a picture with Bronson, and, you know, so they were starting to big, big, big. really gear up to do some, some good movies, yeah. these guys. And uh, Gene was working over there, and they brought him on as a producer. He was a writer and a, and a producer. And uh, he brought me over there for a meeting with Charlotte and Winkler, and they said, look, if, uh, if you bring us a project and we make it, we'll give you the same deal we do with a couple other agencies. And I said, what's that? And they said, we'll give you a piece of our end of the picture. 
So I said, uh, okay. net net points. That sounds fair. Yeah. Not gross. No, no, no. Nobody, nobody's getting gross in those nah, days. It's gross. Yeah. Although I used mean, to say, and for people, say the day will come, <laughs> and I was right. <laughs> and what that means for people who don't know, net is a percentage of the declared profits. Gross is off the top. Off the top, yeah. which is dollar one at the box office. And net is often considered Net's sucker after, points. Well, well, they can say that, but you know, yeah, yeah, because I haven't had points in fifty movies. I only saw <laughs> profits from a couple. Right, you know? right. But the reality of it was that um, you know uh, uh, I had uh, read this script project by by Sly and uh, I given it to. Uh, to chart off Winkler, and they said they would do it. They ran uh, Lords of Flatbush. But they had a deal with United Artists where any picture that they made that was $2 million or less, United Artists only had to approve the director and the budget, okay, the final budget, but they didn't have say over who was in it. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm. Charles Winkler had total control over all those things, all the good. creative elements. So um, I gave them this project, and uh, we started negotiating with, uh, with United Artists. And the uh, Morris office called me and said, uh, he doesn't own the script. I said, what are you talking Stallone about? Stallone doesn't yeah, own the script he was selling. You're negotiating. That's what they told me. So uh, he admitted to me that actually he had signed something or taken some money because he needed it. And I said, yeah, but you didn't tell us that. You know, uh, and now this could end up in a lawsuit. And I can guarantee you, you know, that I'll try, but I don't think that Charlie Winkler will touch it with a 10-foot pole. So I set up a meeting and Charlie Winkler Said, look, you know, we like the kid, but you know, tell him to bring us something else, and we'll talk about it. We'll see what it is. Uh-huh. You know. So then he pitched me in some idea, some idea about, you know, somebody who runs for mayor, and I said that's not going to work. Oh, this was uh, yeah. Stallone. Stallone wrote this. I had this idea of a cab driver in New York running for mayor. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, a cab driver, and uh, they said that's not going to work. You got to have something more that's going to take off with some. Bang. Yeah. So he called me the next day, and I guess he had watched the Chuck Webner fight or something. And then he said, what about a fighter who runs for, you know, uh, a fighter? Who goes his the, life, the big know? stakes. I said, yeah, okay. Um, that sounds more realistic. Write the script. So he, my understanding was he dictated the script to his wife, Sasha, at the time. And they, they came up with the script and brought it to us. And then we gave it to— uh, Did he name it Rocky. I think that was on the title. Rocky, I think, was the name of his dog. Ah. No, Butkus was the name of the dog. Butkus? Butkus. That would have been a good title. He had a pug named Butkus. Butkus 3. I think it was. So anyway, uh, we negotiated a deal, and in the first deal, he he did get – he got paid for the script – because you had to, because they were signature of the guild. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know what the fee, remember what the number was, but he had to make at least twenty five grand. Mike take about it, mm-hmm. and probably did it for scale, whatever mm-hmm. it was, mm-hmm. and that was okay. But I think he got points in the picture, as I recall. I think he had ten points in the picture. Uh-huh. But, mm-hmm. uh huh. But you know, the, mm-hmm. again, there were net points right. because he wasn't getting gross pic- money on the pictures. So I don't know all the deals that were made subsequently after that because mm-hmm. I was only involved in negotiating on the first two pictures. But did he insist that he was going to play the, the lead? Well, what happened was uh, <laughs> I was told by United Artists that Mike Medavoy, and I, I, I loved Mike. Mike. Mike's a terrific guy and very bright. All big but names. But Mike loved the script. and oh. He was head of production for UA. But... Uh, Mike, so so Gene Kirkwood says to me, Mike loves the script. And what does that mean? No, <laughs> Mike really loves the script. I said, 
Really? Really. He said, but he loves it for Jimmy Kahn. Over James Conn. James Conn. Oh. <laughs> Who would have been a great Rocky. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well. So I said, <laughs> that is not going to happen. He said, well, will he sell the script? No. I said, he's not going to sell the script. I said, how about mm. if I just burn the script? Because if he doesn't do this movie, he's going to be playing Italian heavies for the rest of his yeah. career. Yeah. This is the kid's shot. And he's not, you know, you're, you're not going to get to do it with Jimmy Conn. As a matter of fact, I said, when I negotiated the contract, we insisted that his contract stipulate they didn't have the right to replace him until half, well, 18 days of principal photography. That's because the whole schedule of principal photography was 36 days. And I knew if they were going to shoot half the movie with him, <laughs> they, there was no way they were going to shoot him for five days and they say, oh, we don't like him. He's, right. ah, he's done with paying him. You know? Right, right. So uh, they said, well, we don't give that deal to McQueen. I said, McQueen doesn't need it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they agreed to that. They agreed to somehow. It. And, uh, so you really were the person behind protecting him that way. Yeah. So you were his agent. Oh, I was his agent. Right. So you really <laughs> did protect him. Yeah. I, I, well, we were trying to protect him. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's exactly that's exactly what happened. Now, as the years went on, I don't know how many times it was renegotiated. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, he's still doing Rocky movies because he did Creed. You know, right. I mean, Creed now, 1, did, did, Creed 2. Uh, is, yeah. It's uh, Creed 3, I would so go did, see this weekend. So this, this perhaps manufactured controversy in the media about him complaining about the early Rocky pictures that he was sort of didn't get his just desserts. Um, Poor guy. I yeah. mean, they, yeah. I don't get that because they did gamble on an unknown with yeah. an unknown script. Well, the guy that I have to give a lot of credit to is somebody that you guys have never heard of. His name is David Weitzner. And David Weissner was the ad pub guy at United Artists. Ah. And he came up with this sell-through line, which was, Rocky, his whole life was a million to one shot. Now, who doesn't want to see a movie about oh, somebody right. who doesn't, doesn't have a million to one shot? And to Stallone's right. credit, he was terrific in yeah, that he role. Was. And, and the picture was, well, story aside was, I was a huge fan of Lee J. Cobb. And I was fortunate mm. enough to have dinner with him one night at another actor named James, late Jimmy Hampton uh, house. And uh, Lee was there for dinner with his wife, Mary. And uh, I was a huge fan of Lee So I said to him, when I got the Rocky script, I said to them when they were going to put together the Rocky movie, I said to those guys, the producers, I think I could get Lee J. Cobb to read this for you. Mm. So uh, he said, really? I said, yeah, let me, let me give him the script. So I gave Lee J. Cobb the script and he read it. And he said he liked it. So I set up a meeting for Lee with, uh, I didn't represent him, another friend of mine uh -huh. at the time. So we set up a meeting and Lee went to meet with John Avelson, who was the directing it. John and John Avelson, you know, and, and I knew John from back in the day. And uh, John said to Lee, I'd like you to read for me. Oh. And uh -oh. <laughs> Lee got up and said, I'm going to tell you the same thing I told Arthur Miller. So what's that? Go screw yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and he walked out of the room. And that was the end of Lee J. Cobb. You know, it's interesting is that uh, Lawrence is being very kind and, and, and respecting the FCC. <laughs> because when you speak to Lawrence about the business off microphone, it's very colorful language. Very colorful language. language. Very co and so another, another interesting Zelig moment for you. You, were, you. you represented Peter Fonda. Correct. And so you, you didn't work on the original 
easy rider, but no. there was talk of a of a of a sequel apparently. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, he asked me to come over because he was in the hospital. I think he was having his ankle fixed. And from a, a motorcycle, motorcycle. Yeah. yeah, from yeah, a motorcycle actually had years before. Mm-hmm. So I went over to the hospital with Cedars and uh, walk in the room, and and uh, he's there with Dennis Hopper, and uh, they say, "Sit down, we want to we want to pitch you something." I said, "Okay." So I sat down, and they both start working on me, and and, and uh, I'm looking at them, and I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about, and I said, "There's only one problem with what you guys just pitched me." I said, "What?" I said, "This is after." E- Easy Rider, right? Yeah. You both died, Easy Rider. <laughs> <laughs> they said, we know that. We know that. This is uh, going to be like, this takes place. Well, I remember now, he said, this takes place in like in heaven or something. It opens in heaven. Really? I, oh, <laughs> oh, no. My God. He said, give me whatever you're smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, it didn't happen. <laughs> well, well, actually, they got, they got the financing. They to, did. To develop it. And uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened after that, but it didn't. It didn't get made. You know, I, I do know that. But uh, yeah, and, it was fun. Yeah. And getting back to this uh, theme about you know your psychological training background um, and some of the more colorful performers that you represented. One of my favorites, Rip Torn, ah, who yeah. was. Yeah, I love Legendary. Yeah. Not only was he fantastic, I loved him in everything he did. Yeah, he was great. He was truly great. But he was, part of that reason was he was a dangerous character on screen. I mean, you never, he was volatile. That's yeah. what was exciting about him. And in real life, uh, how was it, uh, you know, managing him? Well, you know, I mean, uh, I'll tell you a very funny story about him. I, I, I had a, uh, a character actor terrific actor. His name was uh, Percy Rodriguez and he was black and he was like six foot two and, you know, a little yeah. older, but he, handsome man, really yeah. handsome man. Yeah, Wonderful really. actor, you know, from Canada. He was from Canada, great uh-huh. credits. So he was doing uh, Blues for Mr. Charlie by James Baldwin on Broadway Beautiful. with Rip. Wow. So they were sharing a dressing room. So Percy says that every time he'd come into his dressing room and there would be uh, Rip's props all over uh, its dressing table. The small t- his side of the dressing table, Percy's side of the dressing table, it made Percy crazy. He said, I, 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 finally I had enough. So I got to the theater. He wasn't there. I brought in a garbage can, <laughs> took all of Rip's tro- props, threw them all in the garbage can, took them out in the back of the theater and dumped them in the garbage. Oh! <laughs> so Rip came in, which is always was with the last minute thing with him, and none of his props were there. So he said, where's all my props? And Percy said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, this was the way it was when I came in. He said he went completely crazy because he didn't have any of his props. He said he probably gave his best performance that night. Because you know? <laughs> he was so upset. Now, uh, <laughs> props, you don't mean the, the no, props. The little hand props that he used for his really? character. Really? He actually had all. Yeah, that he, was he had, how he got his inspiration and well, getting the character with. Oh, how he, bizarre. He was a wonderful actor. Really. Oh, he, I totally he agree. He was incredibly consummate and really worked at yeah. it. And, a method actor from the other story you mentioned about when he was due on a set and he didn't appear. Well, yeah, I mean. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, he would, I, re, I, I do remember, yeah. That there he, was a method to his madness. Yeah, he had done, uh, I think I, we had got him a, a gun smoke or something, and he was playing an Indian or something. And he was in New York at the time. Right? And, yeah, and, and he's the, they would fly him out. Yeah. So, uh 
I was saving at lunch somewhere and having a nice lunch at the Playboy Club. And uh, I got a phone call from uh, the producer. said, where's Rip? So what do you mean, where's Rip? <laughs> Isn't he over at the studio? They said, we haven't seen him. Oh, my God. We shoot this tomorrow. Oh, my God. I have to call you back. <laughs> this is, of course, before cell phones, so you really had to find somebody. You had to find somebody. So I found uh, the bunny. Probably I, I found you. I found his house. You know, and, and Jerry Page, his wife, answered the phone. I said, "Jerry, where's uh, where's Rip?" She said, "Well, darling, he left yesterday." I said, "Where did he go?" <laughs> she said, "He's in Oklahoma on an Indian reservation." <laughs> I said, "What the hell is he doing on an Indian reservation?" She said, "Well, this is his number. You can reach him there." I called him. I said, "What the hell are you doing in Oklahoma?" He says, "I'm meeting with the chief of the tribe." I said, "I want to get research for the character, you know, because wow. I'm playing a chief." I said, "Rip, you're shooting tomorrow." He said, "Just tell him to." pick out my wardrobe, <laughs> they give my sizes, and I'll be there. And he was, you know, but wow. it was like you always had to hold your breath. <laughs> you mentioned a very funny story about how uh, he and Steve, Steve McQueen, McQueen yeah. uh, had a had a wardrobe sort of story. Well, uh, with yeah. emphasis on the war. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> well, you know, Rip had, uh, uh, yeah, they were, they were uh, the way Rip used to tell me was, they used to be really tight. Back in the days in New York, when they were at the studio, Steve together. McQueen and Rip Torn. Steve and, and yeah, they were and, studying and, and together. Rip, you know, mm-hmm. they ride motorcycles, they, they date the same girls. Yeah. You know, they were uh, characters. And then uh, Steve came and had his breakout movie, "In Love with a Proper Stranger," I think, with yeah. Natalie Wood or something it was, and he became a movie star. Right. And this is, you know, after uh, "Wanted, Dead or Alive," but there was a big hype about Steve at the time, you know. But um, uh, <laughs> so. Uh, I, we got him uh, the rip, major role in Cincinnati Kid. Uh-huh. And uh, he came out from New York, and my job was to take him over to MGM and take him to the wardrobe, make sure he got wardrobe and everything was okay. A lot of hands-on so stuff. Huh? he and I go to the commissary, and we're having lunch, and Steve walks in and comes over, and Steve's got, uh, got this big grin on his face. and says, how you doing, guys? Rip, great to see you. I'm so glad we're going to be working together, buddy. You know, it's going to be great. And, and, and Rip, like, froze, you know, kind of like, yeah, uh, good to see you, yeah. And he walked away, and I said, uh, what's wrong? What was that? And he says, uh, you know, we used to be real pals. I said, yeah, I know that. I heard you told me that. He says, well... You know, when, after he's doing that picture with, with Natalie Wood or whatever it was, he says, you know, I, I was on the lot doing a television show, and I stopped by, I was in the commissary, and there he was. So I walked over, and he said, Steve, how you doing? I started talking to him, and he went, he, you know, he like gave me the cold shoulder. Oh. So, you know, the heck with him. And I went, yeah, okay, I understand, I get it. So we will finish lunch. He and I walk over to the wardrobe department. Wardrobe man comes out, and he says, Mr. Torn, we have your wardrobe here and he's how and he starts showing rip suits and yeah. the first one he holds up and rip looks at it says, i'm not wearing that kind of crap and then he puts it down and brings out another suit he said and they, they were progressively worse by the <laughs> third suit rip is going like i'm not wearing that stuff I mean, you know do you think i'm playing in this movie i'm not doing this i'm not my character and he says but mr torn these are the suits mr mcqueen picked off for you <laughs> <laughs> he had quite a he was quite uh, a joker that Steve McQueen used to hang out, uh, Robert Mitchum, 
uh, Alan Shepard at a, a place that still exists, Shay J out in Santa Monica. That's right. where we, you know, we started, we started doing our, our show, show out there. there. Shay J was a place that celebrities could go and feel comfortable yeah, because they, no paparazzi they were involved in back rooms where Marilyn waited to see John Kennedy down at Peter Lawford's house on the beach. I mean, it was that kind of a place. Wow. They had peanuts on the floor. It's one of their trademarks. Yeah, and it didn't have the best of orders. But <laughs> <laughs> so they you went. Know, it was a little place. It was a little place, but um, Alan Shepard said to Jay, who owned the restaurant, he said, hey, I'm going to take one of these peanuts to the moon. And he did mm. on Apollo 14. Mm. On Apollo 14. So he came back from the moon. He's sitting at the bar with Robert Mitchum and Steve McQueen. He goes, hey, man, this is the thing that I took to the moon. And McQueen said, oh, yeah, let me see that. He takes it. Ate it. Ate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I, I think I, that's probably right. <laughs> you also work with John Voight. I, I, I think that, you know, it, it's, it, you talk about aging it, all right? And, yeah. And, and, and you got to be really thick-skinned. Mm-hmm. Uh, in two instances like that, it was like... Uh, for Peter Fonda, as, as an example I'm talking about, is he was up for a movie, and it was, uh, I, I can't remember the title, but it was with, uh, I think it was uh, Elizabeth Ashley was in it, and Brian Denny was in it, and it, this, the movie in nice. itself was about a cult hero, a cult figure, yeah. who would take teenagers off the street, and then they do all kinds of, of mischievous and evil things. Mm-hmm. And uh, It's a true story. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right, right. And, and Peter was going to be the leader of the cult. And uh, they wouldn't uh, meet with him. So uh, I went back about five or six times, and uh, they still wouldn't uh, meet with him. I think Ted Kotcheff ended up directing it. Mm-hmm. And um, I finally went back for the, 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 the fifth or sixth time, and I had said to them, look, there's no bigger cult hero than Captain America. So if you don't want to have Captain America play this cult hero in your movie, then you don't have the sense And God, uh, just for people God who don't know, you. Captain America was the character that he played in Easy that, Rider. That was the mm-hmm. character. Yeah, and played. originally it was going to be called something like Captain America, but yeah. Marvel wouldn't let him use the, the yeah, Whatever, the title. Whatever yeah. the thing it was. All right, so it missed Captain America. Okay. Right. So uh, they finally broke down, and I set up a meeting for uh, Peter with Ted Kotcheff at the uh, Bel Air Hotel. And... Uh, he said, are you going to be there? I said, no, I'm not going to be there. It's just going right. to be you and Ted. I don't want to be there. It's better if you just get into talking about, you know, what you're going to talk yep. about. Yep. And he's might have some questions for you. So after that meeting, they offered me the part. But it was like it took, uh, I don't know how many times, five or six times. And a similar thing happened with John Voigt in uh, Coming Home. Mm. Now, mm. They offered John the role of the husband that Bruce Dern inevitably ended up playing. Huh. And John didn't want to do it. So uh, Jane was one of the producers, and Hal Ashby was the director. And Hal's wife was an actress that I represented at the time, or soon before then. Right, right small that world time. and all a, 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 a actress named Joan Marshall, wonderful lady, you know, terrific actress. But uh, what, what happened was that uh, they said, no, uh, we're going to offer it to Jack Nicholson. And uh, huh. I went, Jesus. I said, you got to be kidding. So they did offer it to Jack. And Jack said, I'm done playing guys in hospitals. You know, oh. was, this was after <laughs> Cuckoo's Nest. Nest. Yeah. Cuckoo's yeah. Nest right. So uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. So I went back again. And I said, uh, you got to, uh, you've got to 
really consider seriously consider John. Yeah. So in the meantime, Jane had a uh, a rally at the Beverly Hilton Hotel. An this anti-war is Jane Fonda. Ra- we're talking Jane about Jane Fonda. An anti-war rally, I think it yeah. was or something. So John sure. says, "I think we should go." I said, "Yeah, you're right. We should." So he and I walk into the Hilton Hotel, and there's all these people with suits taking our pictures. And I said, "John, you know those guys aren't photojournalists, right?" Mm-hmm. And he said, "Yeah, I think you're right." Mm. I said, "So I want to thank you for getting me on the FBI's most <laughs> right, <laughs> was my, one <laughs> attendance tonight." <laughs> so, so what happened? And it, after that, uh, they finally and I drove out to Jerry uh, Jerry Hellman's house in Malibu, and I said, "Jerry, you got to let him come in for this movie. You got to really." And Jerry had already produced Midnight Cowboy with him. Mm-hmm. So oh, he, sure. So it wasn't like he didn't know what John oh, could do. Oh, my gosh. You know? And I said, uh, he's not going to play the, the husband. He's not going to play it. So if you want him for this movie, he's going to have to play this guy. And Jane thought about it and thought about it and finally said, I remember the line they said to me. This was after Midnight Cowboy. This is what, the, what this business is about. Mike Manavoy doesn't think he's a movie star. I said, uh-huh. I don't care if Mike doesn't think he's a movie star or not, but you can't name me 10 actors in this town that are better actors than John. So you better think, you should think about that. So at this point in time, they turned around and they offered him, you know, and he won the Oscar. That's right. Wow. So I, That's when right. I saw him not too long ago, he hugged me and thanked me again. I said, for what? He said, the thing. <laughs> Which Aww. thing? <laughs> well, that's nice. That thing. A long memory. Well, so, so agents, a, talent agents have a bad rap. Uh, of, you Sometimes know, deserved. I, yeah. I, I, I'm sure. But, you know, looking back now at the career of, uh, you know, how cutthroat, how was it an honor among thieves? What, what, what was the currency for you? I mean, what made you, obviously, you're, speak your mind, you're, you're a football player, you are <laughs> brilliant, and you are imposing. And I'm sure that helped. Uh, and you were successful. And you were successful, which you did. But but what is the form of integrity in that Honor line of, among thieves. Yeah, is, honor among, is, it, is, that, is that a cheap shot to say it's honor among thieves? I mean, what is it? Uh, let me exp- explain something to you, if I may. An agent's word in California can bind you. By law. By law. Ah. That's a fact. So if your agent says you'll agree to something, you, you, you know, do then it. you've agreed to it. Mm-hmm. But the fact of getting you to perform is not always the same thing, you know. And, and the reality of, of all that comes to, to pass when you get into these kinds of situations where you're, it's very competitive, you mm-hmm. know. And like the, the joke was, yeah, you know, your best friend in Hollywood, he's the one to stab you in the chest. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Uh, the reality of it is when you're representing talent mm-hmm. and you're representing uh, not just actors, it means because I represent writers, I represent directors, you know, and I can't tell you how many times that would come into in, in, in to pass, mm-hmm. you know, and you had to go and you had to win over the In film, you have to have the director on board with you, mm-hmm. you know, for him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, I can remember one time I had a client that uh, she wrote a script and uh major company wanted to do it at Warner Brothers. They had a deal there. And we were going to do it, and she was going to do it, and I had Brenda Bluff attached to it and somebody else attached to it. And the director that we had who had co-written the script with my client who came up with the original idea for uh-huh. it, 
so I tied him to it because I wanted to get him a chance to direct a movie. He had drawn a couple of movies. So we got in the meeting with the head of production for the company, the guy that owned it. And he was a notoriously difficult guy. And with all his whole creative team in the room to pitch the movie. And he walked in the room and sat down, the head of the company, and he said, now tell me how you guys are going to make all this money for me and I'm going to get all kinds of awards. So now tell me what the movie is about. <laughs> right? So this guy, this director, froze. Mm. In the meeting, he, he couldn't get through the opening of the oh, pitch. Gee. And I knew I was in deep trouble. So I jumped in and she jumped in wow. and we started pitching the movie. Now, I had already brought in half the financing. Right. I brought in the guy that was putting up half the financing wow. the tax shelter deals. And they were going to come up and do the balance of the money. And it didn't happen. So the, this, the moral of this story is that you were a facilitator and you're working between incredible, in between giant egos, some eccentricities, a little madness, and somehow you're putting it together. And then, you get, and then an agent gets a rap for being sort of, but I mean that in a, in a, in a complimentary way. It's like you, you are making things happen. Got to be inventive. Very difficult people. But and that's what, what impresses me about all your stories is the, the, these are real people that you're interacting with and you have relationships with these people. You know, and that to me is real Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Because so many deals used to be made at parties in the old days. Well, our party's over oh, for boy, that, <laughs> that went so quickly. Well, Lawrence Kubik, thank wonderful. you so Thanks. much. Thank for, you for the insights. It was really a delight yeah, and uh, it was very fun. fascinating. And uh, thank you. Come You're across the street anytime you want. <laughs> you we'll, got it. We'll have some coffee. <laughs> you know, this is Phil and Ted's Sexy Boomer Show, heard every uh, week on KPFK at 1 to 2. And also, you can go to our website, sexyboomershow.com. All right. Thanks, my friends. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.